You're listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local news, music, and culture. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. As a reminder, Jackson Unpacked is now available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Please subscribe today and help support Jackson's only nonprofit newsroom. Coming up on today's show, we hear from a conservative conservationist who supports the Biden administration's pause on new oil and gas leases on public lands. There's no red energy, there's no blue energy, there's no left energy, there's no right energy. Plus, KHOL music director Jack Catlin interviews the local multi-instrumentalist Ben Yarrow about developing his one-man band sound and surviving a difficult bout with COVID-19. At the end is when uh, my heart and my breathing felt altered, and that was scary. But first, we take a deep dive into a complicated issue dominating local headlines and dinner table conversations alike. What does the future hold for scenic helicopter tours in the airspace around Grand Teton National Park? Both the Teton County Board of Commissioners and the Town of Jackson recently passed unanimous bans on commercial air tours over Grand Teton National Park. The newly adopted resolutions come less than a year after a private company started operating scenic helicopter tours out of the Jackson Hole Airport. However, as KHOL's Kyle Mackey reports, those flights aren't likely to stop anytime soon. The Jackson Town Council got at least 25 emails supporting a ban on scenic flights over the park during the week leading up to the May 17th meeting when the new resolution was adopted. The messages came from a range of community stakeholders, including Jackson resident Mike Halloran. Well, I think it's absurd, and I don't know what planet the FAA lives on that it permits heli-tours in a precious national park Halloran's comment cuts to the heart of the issue when it comes to commercial air tours over Grand Teton National Park. Neither local government nor the park itself has the authority to ban them. Commercial air tours are managed by the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. So the town and county actions are largely symbolic, as was confirmed by Jackson Town Attorney Leah Colaswano during the recent meeting. Symbolic. It expresses your, you know, community's statement in terms of being the elected officials for the community about the air tour issue in the community. Despite their lack of authority, local leaders say they're opposed to the tours because of documented negative impacts like noise pollution, wildlife disturbances, and potential safety hazards. County Commissioner Luther Probst also echoes the worries of many area residents when he says he's concerned not just about one operator, but the bigger picture down the road. I've spent time in Hawaii, on Kauai, and Maui, and Molokai, where the helicopter business has become a, a, a big industry. And um, I'm concerned that, that if we can't find a way to regulate or to prohibit helicopters, that we're going to wind up with another amusement park type activity that has impacts on wildlife and that has impacts on every other form of outdoor recreation. I feel like I have a right to operate those tours as much as anybody else, as much as the river rafters, as much as the wildlife tours and vans, as much as the snowshoe guides, the, the mountain guides, I mean, all the above. Tony Chambers is the founder and helicopter pilot of Wind River Air LLC, which he started in 2018. He says scenic flights now make up about a third of his business and that he tries to concentrate the tours he operates from the Jackson Hole Airport to just a couple of days per week. 
Even so, Chambers' Red Robinson R-44 helicopter is becoming a familiar sight to area residents like Ryan Dorgan of Kelly, who captured multiple videos of a red helicopter flying over Grand Teton National Park between July and December 2020. This audio is used with permission from both Dorgan and the Jackson Hole News and Guide. And can you tell me about who your typical clients are for those scenic flights? Um, so the typical client is a mixture of uh, visitors and locals. Contrary to popular belief, it's not like the, the rich and famous that can afford to do these flights. It's actually just normal people, kind of normal everyday people that are on vacation. And it's a bucket list item, something that they want to do, and, and they do it in their tickle paint. Chambers says he estimates that about 20% of his clients are locals. But there's also plenty of local opposition to his business. As of Monday, 2,542 people have signed the Jackson Hole Conservation Alliance's Heli No petition opposing the tours, according to the Alliance's conservation program manager, Chelsea Carson. The goal of the campaign is to permanently ban heli tours over the park through congressional legislation. There's a lot of steps involved. So um, I would say I'm very hopeful. And the fact that we have the town and county resolution, the fact that we have really large community engagement and opposition on this issue, I think that we're setting ourselves up really well. But that's there, it's just a little early to say how this is all going to play out. Too early, in part, because Chambers' permit to continue operating scenic flights was just renewed for another year in April by the Jackson Hole Airport Board. But the board also chastised Chambers for what they said were clear departures from the flight pass he agreed to fly in and out of the airport, which is located within the park and the only part of the park Chambers is authorized to fly over. The board president also cited alleged violations of Grand Teton's request that chambers fly above 2,000 feet while in park airspace. Bob McLaurin is the lone member of the airport board who voted against the permit extension. I voted against it because I looked at the flight tracks that had been flown, um, and my understanding of that data that was presented by our president, John Eastman, I didn't feel I could, could vote for it because he hadn't done what he said he was going to do. Chambers says there's no merit to the claims that he's flying over the park more than necessary for his scenic tours. That's because there are different rules for different kinds of flights. How can you or the airport board distinguish the different flights that I perform? How do you know it's a scenic flight versus a ferry flight versus an instructional flight? You don't. McLaurin says Chambers has a point there, but that there's also some evidence the pilot's behavior has improved since he was reprimanded by the board. My understanding is he's not flying over the park nearly as much since uh, we had that conversation at the airport board. Chambers says he's not interested in developing an air tour management plan with the FAA and the National Park Service, which would be required for him to fly over more of the park. But the other federal land his scenic tours fly over, he says, like the National Elk Refuge and parts of the Bridger Teton, aren't subject to that kind of protection. Over non-wilderness forest, there is no altitude requirements, no other, no other regulations. And that's regulated by the FAA. It's not regulated by the forces. The FAA declined KHOL's interview request for this story. The administration also declined to say how many noise or other complaints it's gotten related to Wind River Air through the FAA hotline. The town says there's been at least six violations over the park, which Chambers disputes. My record with the FAA is squeaky clean, zero violations on any kind of level, any kind of activity. And my safety record is squeaky clean with no incidents, no accidents, no, no nothing. 
The FAA has also told the airport board that revoking or denying a renewal permit for Chambers would automatically trigger an investigation. That could potentially jeopardize about $132 million in FAA funding for the airport, according to the News & Guide. In short, local residents like Halloran could be left frustrated for a while, but that doesn't mean they might not try to take matters into their own hands. I would say that there are citizens in Jackson um, who have sufficient money to do this and are considering litigation against them as we speak. Interesting. Are you one of those people? I am. Another outcome short of federal legislation that the Conservation Alliance is hoping might be a possibility is that Chambers will voluntarily stop his scenic flights in the face of vocal community opposition. He says that's not likely. I live here. I operate here. Business is just fine. I don't, there's no reason whatsoever for me to want to walk away. Kyle Mackey, KHL News. Wyoming lawmakers have repeatedly bashed President Joe Biden for his administration's moratorium on new oil and gas leases on public lands. But several policymakers at the national level say the federal government's leasing system is in desperate need of reform. KHOL's Will Walkie talked to one conservative advocate who supports some changes about how he thinks energy policy in the Mountain West could be improved. American taxpayers lost out on 12.4 billion dollars in revenue from drilling on public lands between 2010 and 2019. That's because of outdated national fiscal policies, according to the nonpartisan group Taxpayers for Common Sense. Dave Jenkins is president for the organization Conservatives for Responsible Stewardship and has been an advocate for fiscal stability and conservation for several decades. I asked him what's currently contributing to that mammoth revenue shortfall. You know, the minimum bid for um, securing a lease on our public lands is a a, a measly $2 an acre. And so people are scarfing up this acreage at these uh, ridiculously low prices. And then on top of that, we have the royalty rates. Um, If you drill offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, you're paying the the U.S. Treasury uh, over 18% uh, in royalties. If you do the same thing on public lands out west, you're only paying a little over 12%. Um, So there's no real reason for that disparity. So it's those kind of numbers that add up uh, over time to really um, shortchange taxpayers. How did all these trends get affected during the Trump administration? So the Trump administration went hog wild in terms of oil and gas leasing. They were having huge leases, uh, lease sales every single quarter. Uh, in, in all states all the way all across the West. And in fact, during the, during the Trump administration, an area the size of Tennessee was offered up for oil and gas leasing. So when you're doing that much rushed, though caution to the wind, kind of just leasing everything imaginable, 
then these problems that are fiscal in nature become magnified, of course, because you've just got more activity under, you know, under those uh, outdated laws. And so the Biden administration has essentially done a complete reversal by pausing new oil and gas leases on federal lands. What's your interpretation of this policy? And I guess a few months into the policy, how do you think it's working out so far? You know, the key for this is that they use this pause to actually reform the system. Um, and then uh, when we start back up, you know, taxpayers are getting a, a, a fairer shake. And to that end, there's, there's quite a few bills in Congress, including bipartisan bills, uh, that are designed to do those reforms. Just one example, Chuck Grassley and Jackie Rosen, uh, Grassley a Republican and Rosen a Democrat, have introduced the Fair Returns for Public Lands Act. And um, that would increase that royalty rate we were talking about earlier uh, from that 12.5% to 18.75%, uh, which is the same for, for offshore. And it would increase um, the um, minimum bid for oil and gas leases from $2 an acre to $10 an acre and a number of other things. But th that's the kind of thing that we would like to have in place before we crank the leasing back up again. You know, Wyoming's governor as well as our two senators, our one representative, Liz Cheney, have all been essentially railing against the Biden administration for this policy, calling it pretty detrimental to the state. From your perspective, how, how true is that? How detrimental is the current oil and gas leasing pause on a state like Wyoming that relies so much on fossil fuels? Well, I, actually, it's not at all. The people who are claiming this are, I don't know where they're getting their talking points from, but whoever created the talking points were just, were just making stuff up. The head of Devon Energy and, and Occidental Petroleum have already said, as soon as the election was over, they said, oh, we're not worried about a leasing pause because we've got enough stockpiled leases to keep us busy through the entire administration. And, you know, the administration hasn't said they're going to pause through their entire four years. They're, it was initially listed as six six-month pause, uh, even if it's extended a little bit, it's not going to uh, change that dynamic given all the stockpiled leases out there. So given all those things, uh, how can it actually harm the oil and drilling activity in Wyoming uh, in the near term? Uh, it, it doesn't seem plausible to me. Your position of, of fiscal common sense and helping the taxpayer, is that something that you see as being able to convince some of the politicians on the on the political right, maybe even in a state like Wyoming, and is, is that a position that you think can potentially make change in the end? The the interesting thing that we see, which is I think is how we differ from from the environmental groups that are more left, is that what we're saying is the market now favors these cleaner energy sources. So we can solve climate change and lower energy bills at the same time by leaning into this market. The problem is what we're seeing on the political right are these people who are somehow so wed to um, certain energy sources that they are even willing to consider subsidizing and propping up or, or putting out laws that disadvantage other sources of energy just to protect that one particular industry. The thing is, is, you know, energy is energy. There's no red energy. There's no blue energy. There's no left energy. There's no right energy. It's all just energy. And so which one makes sense will vary from time to time, but generally, you know, cheaper is better than expensive. Uh, clean is better than dirty and infinite is better than finite. So if we look at this from a market perspective, like conservatives are supposed to do, 
we see we will see this change coming and we'll see that we need to follow the market we don't need to be tied to energy sources that are no longer that are you know getting less and less economic and eventually are going to disappear dave jenkins thanks so much for joining me and thanks so much for talking with khol yeah thanks for having me just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked on KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local and regional news, music, and culture. Jackson Unpacked airs Wednesdays at 7.30 a.m. and Fridays and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. And you can also now listen and subscribe to the show as a podcast on your favorite podcast app. Up next, KHOL music director Jack Catlin talks with local composer and multi-instrumentalist Ben Yarrow, who returned to live performing this week with a show at the Center for the Arts in Jackson. Local multi-instrumentalist and composer Ben Yarrow has been described as punk Americana and indie acoustic soul power. Ben Musser's one-man band live show features him playing drums, percussion, guitars, and singing simultaneously with no looping. Ben Musser joins us now in the k studio. So curious, how did you develop your one-man band performance? Well, it starts out with uh, learning the various instruments. I, I was a drummer first and foremost when I was six or seven years old, got my first drum kit and then took interest to guitar because my father had a guitar around and we had a piano around at the house. Early touring days for me when Ben Yarrow was uh, me solo and I just added the shaker in my shoe because I was bored with just playing guitar and I've always kind of just added things into the mix to, you know, make it more interesting primarily for me. And then I think maybe it eventually was translating to the audience. And so this latest setup formed two or three years ago when, uh, you know, added bongos and and hi-hat and kick drum. Then by way of necessity from quarantine, not being able to play with bass players that I usually do, I finally kind of made the leap from depending on someone else to be there with me to just being like, okay, this is what it is. And I'm going to kind of lock down this solo performance. So Guest House, which you run with your wife, Camille Obering, is a private studio space in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which invites artists, musicians, and creators to explore and present new ideas. Can you talk about the importance of collaboration when it comes to art and how the guest house plays into that? My wife and I built a space on our property that's quite simple in concept, but it has turned into this amazing space for both art, film, and music to take place. And uh, my wife is an art advisor and um, curator, and she has brought several shows to our space, and it's provided me with an opportunity to work in the contemporary art space and meet these artists. And as what just happened with Ati Meyer, Ati came and was checking out the space and she and Camille were like, okay, yeah, let's do this show. Ati's films, it's called the Space Rider Film Cycle. And she just happened to be hanging around for a couple days and asked me, hey, what are you doing? Can you help me with the score for my art film? I was like, uh, yeah, absolutely. So it's put me just in position to get to know these artists and to have natural collaboration happen. So yeah, it's kind of 
worked out better than we imagined in some ways to provide a spot for people to come try new ideas and experiment and get weird. So you unfortunately got COVID-19 a while back and have said that it took you months to start feeling normal again. Did that affect your creative process and how did you get yourself back into performance shape? Yes, it did affect my creative process. I mean, it just threw a wet blanket on myself and my wife as well. You know, I had a whole smorgasbord of symptoms for about 10 days. And then at the end is when uh, my heart and my breathing felt altered. And that was scary. And that lasted for several months. We had kind of had like a new equilibrium of just being more tired than usual. And we just got used to that. And then these shots kicked it out of our system as we had heard it might. And yeah, I can really say, wow, I can make it through my set and then some and my breathing. That that was one of the last things to go as I kind of do this one man band thing, you know, singing on top of it while playing the drums has always been challenging for breath. And I can finally kind of hold notes out. So finally, what's next for Benyaro? You told me you're working on a single and a B-side that is slated for release later this year. I am, yes. I'm working on finishing the reprise to a song. It's kind of like an electronic music version of a rock song that I did, but I turned it into kind of a more folk rock song that I've been playing at live shows, and I've finished the recording of the kind of rock folk version, and now I'm kind of going back to the original tune in doing a electronic version of it, experimenting with my keyboard, and hopefully, you know, if this summer doesn't get too busy, I can finish it this summer and maybe release it in early 2022. Hear Ben Yaro's music right here on KHUL during our local music hour weekdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Make sure to visit 891khul.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Hatlin, and this is KHUL Jackson. Lawmakers in Idaho and Montana recently passed laws aimed at dramatically reducing the number of wolves in their states by as much as 90 percent. The presence of wolves in Jackson Hole is also one of the most polarizing topics in the area. But why is that? KHOL's Emily Cohen interviewed the author and local resident Philippa Forrester last summer about her book On the Trail of Wolves and about what wolves have come to symbolize in American politics. This story originally aired in July 2020. When British writer Philippa Forster moved with her family in 2015 to western Wyoming, the sounds of wolves spoke to her. One day I was in the cabin working on um, a children's book, and I was on my own, and we were up there in the middle of nowhere in Moran. It felt like the middle of nowhere when you came from England. And um, I heard the phantom pack go by the house. I didn't see one that day. But listening to them in all of that silence, tracking them in my brain, like I I knew where they were, they were on the river, and really being intrigued by what they were doing, why they were calling. With a degree in ecology, Forrester was long captivated by the story of the reintroduction of Yellowstone's wolves in the late 1990s. But that day, she began an exploration of why people think and feel the way they do about wolves. It's a polarizing topic that often pits conservationists against those who make their living off the land. We asked Forrester to read an excerpt from her book that speaks to some of the polarization. Every comment from someone who loves them 
is countered by a comment such as, the only good wolf is a dead wolf. For every person who says the reintroduction was a good thing, there are comments from local hunters with theories. Yellowstone reintroduced a non-native species of wolf because the wolves came from Canada. They're too big for the prey here. The wolves are out of control, decimating valuable herds of wild elk and deer and causing problems for ranchers. The comments and discussions between wolf lovers and wolf haters are vitriolic. The issues being so passionately discussed are bigger than just the wolves. They spin off into conversations about gun ownership, the president, local versus national politics, trophy hunting, and our relationship with the natural world. The words monsters and evil come up time and again in respect of both wolves and humans, depending on which side of the fence the commenter stands. Where people stand on the wolf debate seems to tie into where they generally stand. And, at first glance, this argument defines liberals against conservatives. Conservation and evolution theory against religion. And how did speaking with people from so many sides of the debate change your perspective? To be honest, my position remains the same. I'm still passionate about conservation. I think the reintroduction has only shown us even more reasons why we need those top predators in the ecosystem, the trophic cascade effect. Trophic cascade is a reference to the impact of one species on the whole of the ecosystem. With the reintroduction of wolves in the region, willows along stream banks were no longer overgrazed by elk. This led to the return of songbirds, beavers, and otters. We asked Philippa Forrester if she has any further insight after speaking with so many people about why humans have this fascination with wolves. There's something mysterious about wolves, and and yet we feel connected to them. They're about family. They're about teamwork. They're about survival. There's so much that we can identify with and so much that we still don't know. And then on the flip side of that, I think, you know, you're talking about fables and Red Riding Hood and all of those things, the wolf has been really symbolic of another creature on our level, probably, that has conquered the wilderness, if you like, and so comes from the woods, comes from the mountains, sometimes causing chaos for us. And there is, I think, what's happened is the wolf has become, you know, because we are a creature of myth and magic, the wolf has become symbolic of wilderness and what that means and how we relate to it. Whether we anthropomorphize wolves or view them as other, the problem with wolves is not them, it's us, as Forrester notes in this passage. Do we love wolves because, biologically speaking, they're so close to who we are? Because we identify with them? And do we fear and hate them because we recognize cruelty in them that we also have within us that we don't want to face? I realize my own fascination has partly been not about whether we can live with wolves, but about how we've forgotten how to live like them, to be in the moment, to have a clear set of values, even if they're only biological, to play, to live and die with gusto because there's no other choice to be comfortable in the natural world. On the Trail of Wolves by Philippa Forrester is available on Audible and on Amazon UK. I'm Emily Cohen for listener-supported KHOL Jackson. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. 
Original music for the show is by the local band, Strawbucket. Tune in for Jackson Unpacked every week, Wednesday mornings at 7.30 a.m. and Fridays and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. And remember to subscribe to Jackson Unpacked, the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.